Remember those idyllic scenes out of your childhood? Crisp winter nights, star bright, sleigh bells, crackling yule logs, candlelight glistening off of shimmering Christmas trees, chestnuts roasting over open fires, carolers beneath snow-covered window ledges. Remember those. Remember them well. After Black Christmas, they'll never be the same again. Black Christmas, starring Olivia Hussey, Keir Dulay, Margot Kidder, and starring John Saxon as Lieutenant Fuller. If this movie doesn't make your skin crawl, it's on too tight. All right, the March Mad Men are back to finish what we started. Don't tell Mom and Dad. This is part two of our thorough but loving autopsy of Bob Clark's seminal slasher, Black Christmas. And I do mean seminal in more ways than one there. I suspect that Billy got pretty seminal in the course of this movie. But uh, leaving that alone for now, Rich already has me on an FBI watch list for my keen interest in this movie's sorority house. Let's just get it rolling. Vic, how'd it go with your in-laws visit, buddy? It's been a couple of weeks since we recorded part one. It was just fine, John. Uh, I love my in-laws dearly, and we had a lovely visit. Unfortunately, before and after that visit, I I have been doing real labor, like real old-fashioned. I I built a bar. I stained it. uh, I I put some high-top tables on some barrels. uh, I'm working on, on... sanding and refinishing my picnic table and john i hurt everywhere (laughs) i every part of my body is in pain honestly i'm kind of hoping that some fucking weirdo climbs out of the ceiling and just puts a plastic bag over my head and lets me rock in a rocking chair for a while ouch put you out of your misery huh i hear that and what i think your problem is is like i think you have too much free time on your hands (laughs) <laughs> You've got a. You, you can't have that many projects without having too much free time. You you need more kids. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely, two is not enough. It's funny you mentioned that though, Vic. That uh, we got like this kind of crazy out of the blue offer for a nearly free couch from a, a friend's aunt up in Thousand Oaks, and we rented a. Uh, U-Haul and went up there and of course the woman had a bunch of other shit. Oh, well, you have the truck. Can you uh, can you move all this other stuff that uh, I'd like to move into this other house? So we did that, but it really was this couch and I didn't have any uh, dudes with me moving it. I just had uh, two small-ish ladies and we had to haul it like a half a block in two pieces, but both were huge into my apartment in like 102 degree weather and my arms were hurting for at least three days after that. So I have some iota of understanding for what you've put your body through and shame on you, sir. Yeah. We we don't have the same recovery time that we used to, huh, John? No, we do not. No, we do not. So Rich, are you back on the sauce? And by that, I mean, whatever you put on the bread, you dip in your stew when you're not drinking alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I got my stew out of the way uh, early this evening. Uh, nice. You should be impressed. Um, tonight, I'm actually broadcasting from my garage. Uh, the show was just too hot to handle inside, <laughs> um, so I came out here, and yeah, and, and that has, that has brought me closer to the uh, to the beer fridge, which means this pizza port 
Uh, Summer Oasis is uh, is just easily within reach. Oh, that's a beautiful uh, thing. Oh. Yeah. That is a beautiful thing. Uh, myself, I'm drinking the Calico Amber Ale, which is a Ballast Point brew. This is not one of their stronger ones, but I have uh, a meeting tomorrow and some intensive copywriting to do. So I don't want to be too fuzzy brain tomorrow. So, but I do have my skull mug out, which uh, comes out for special occasions on this show. Uh, so I'm already starting to get into the spirit of Halloween a little bit here. Vic, what's going on in your beverage world? This might be a first for the podcast. I'm not sure. I'm drinking a Boulevard tank seven American Saison which is a delightful, citrusy, hoppy saison. Very highly recommended. By the way, Vic, there's a place in the Valley where you can get Fin de Monde on tap for $5. I mean, I won't say no to that, but the Valley's pretty far. <laughs> Come on down, man. <laughs> yeah, we're spend $40 worth of gas. <laughs> But if you drink 12 of them, it pretty much balances out. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and, then, and, then a, and then a $90 Uber back to the house. Right. right. <laughs> I was kind of impressed, though. I thought of you. I thought you would appreciate that deal. But uh, what we do appreciate for sure is this movie. So uh, let's venture back into that sorority house on a deathly cold Canadian night and see what old Billy is up to. I have a feeling that poor Barb picked the wrong night to go to bed early, guys. So, where we left off, let's get back into our sort of group view here. We're at uh, one hour and 59 minutes on the old counter. I think it's an hour and 59 seconds. Yes, yes, you're right. We've passed through the original film. We're into the remake. (laughs) (laughs) This is where uh, Michelle Trachtenberg uh, says something that's supposed to be clever. It was a long week for me, too, so my brain cells are not entirely intact. But uh, let's go ahead and hit play, shall we, gents? Yes. All right. Okay. We're seeing uh, Barb, Margot Kidder, of course, is playing this role. Uh, We talked at length about how great she is in this movie last time, but she's tossing and turning, and uh, Jess hears her disturbed sleep, runs in to check on her. Barb, what's the matter? And uh, Barb also suffers from asthma, it seems. So she needs her inhaler, and uh, Jess, the good friend that she is, hands it to her. I might have alluded to this scene earlier um, in that, Barb just suddenly seems so vulnerable, you know, after being the tough den mother, the the mother hen of this group of girls. Does anyone here have asthma? I don't. No. So there's something about the inhaler. It feels so arcane. Like it feels like something that they should, like should have just like eradicated out of the human system a long time ago. <laughs> you know, my, my wife very, has one. Does she? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm like, sure, it's, it's certainly still a thing. It's just like there's something about like this particular illness. Like there's such a um, kind of like a physicality to it. Like it like it it comes along with like it's it's like non-threatening, but at the same time, you're right. It like kind of renders people helpless very momentarily. It can be threatening. I mean, certainly in the movies, sometimes I think we've seen people die or come close to dying because of asthma. And I'm sure there's some rooting in fact. I don't think my wife has it too bad. She barely ever uses it. I was going to say, speaking of suffocating, here are these uh, carolers at the door. (laughs) 
Yeah, I know you want to talk about the carolers, Rich. You mentioned that uh, last time. I did want to quickly note that Barb said that she thought there was a man in the room with her, and it must have just been a uh, a nightmare. And they both dismiss it, and that, of course, has tragic consequences. So, yes, these carolers, uh, what do you think about this here, uh, Rich? I'm fascinated by the filmmaking here. Like, A, the, the carol seems to go on for an extremely long time. I mean, what an unpleasant experience to have yeah. carolers stay at your door for this long. And, like, I get the feeling from the footage, like, I feel like this was, like, an eight-hour shoot. She's just, like, staring back at them dead-eyed. Like, she looks exhausted. She keeps fixing her hair. Like, there's nothing to do, like, action-wise. Like, there was no directing in this scene. It was just like, okay, you can sing. Now do it again. Now do it again. (laughs) I know. I know. But it perfectly covers the sounds of Billy committing this murder. So it's horrible on more than one level. There are also accessories to murder. Now you see his hair in this silhouette and he's got a weird creepy haircut, just observing. Also, I love the the crazy soft focus Christmas lights in this movie. It's such a distinctive and eerie effect. And then of course we get the murder weapon, this glass unicorn that he picks up and this is the only real slasher killing in the film. I don't think it would be a slasher movie without this scene. Glass Unicorn's an interesting choice for her decor. Yeah, you're right. I mean, she has like a skull thing on the wall, which seems more fitting, uh, that's in the background. Her wall adornment is pretty edgy. But she also just likes glass swans and unicorns and stuff. So our best look at Billy that we ever get in the movie, I think, is in the scene. And this amazing slow-mo shot of her bloody hand knocking over the glass ornaments. Meanwhile, there's the pretty enthusiastic clapping by Jess, uh, Olivia Hussey, downstairs uh, as the carolers get their applause. I love the juxtaposition of the caroling against the, the murder Mm-hmm. This is, I think, genuinely a Christmas horror movie and not a horror movie set at Christmas, mm-hmm. which when I when I when I that popped into my head, what I immediately thought of was the house on Haunted Hill. Right. Is that it? Yeah. Yes. The house on Haunted Hill that was just incidentally set at Christmas and no one ever addressed it in the in the movie. <laughs> um, yeah. But this movie. <laughs> This movie really does make use of the trappings of Christmas and people visiting and the lighting and the the music and stuff. Uh, I I think that's sort of important to it. You heard the scraping piano that we referenced last time as kind of the harbinger of doom as he uh, initially approached Barb's door. And you may have noticed that Barb has these little liquor bottles on her Christmas wreath that's hanging on her door, which is pretty cute. He says, of course, hey, Agnes, it's me, Billy, except he says it a lot creepier. Maybe I should try it. No, I don't know. I'm not, I haven't had enough to drink to do my, my voice acting. <laughs> John, that was, that was plenty creepy, John. That was plenty creepy. <laughs> yeah. We don't need a take two. We've got it. Print it. <laughs> oh, and uh, I had a note here, and I'm not sure exactly how I got this, but um, I said, we learned definitively that it was Billy's guilt over something sexual happening with Agnes, his little sister, that causes him to kill her so that he can't tell on him. That was also creepy, John. <laughs> <laughs> 
You just you just give John enough rope to hang himself. Like you just like <laughs> you just don't cut him off. Just let him keep talking. Like don't respond, and it will feel like he did something wrong. Uh, yeah. Right. <laughs> so yeah, anything else about this scene, you guys? Um, other than like, I just remember feeling when when the door opens and you see the the light pass over Barb's face, you just know this is it for her. She's not, uh, Jess isn't going to come in and save her this time. And, and you like this character, so it's it's just a, you know, kind of an oh no, not Barb kind of a moment. You do like her. And like, I think it's interesting. I think that this is a, this is a good scene in the context of this movie. Like, I agree that I like the car- carolers. Would I call this like a standout scene over the course of this competition though? Like I sort of remembered it it being more iconic and like remembered it a little more fondly. I feel like on, on this viewing, I came back to it after watching all these other slashers and was kind of like, eh, in the pantheon of like slasher kills, like it's like, it's okay. Just as a, as a running trope of this, and it's it's certainly not as on the nose as the drill in uh, Slumber Party Massacre. There is something pretty phallic about the unicorn's horn being used as the the murder weapon, especially in light of what you were saying, John, about how this clearly was a reflection on some kind of sexual something that went on between Billy and Agnes. Yes, absolutely. I mean, what could possibly be more phallic than a unicorn's horn, right? I mean, if we're still being symbolic. (laughs) (laughs) Without getting actually literal, yes. Uh, Definitely, it's, it's phallic. And it's, yeah, there's, there's a lot of substitution in this film for Billy's obviously perverse desires, you know, uh, in relation to, you know, his backstory. I think I agree with you, Rich, in the sense that there's some things that are really cool about this sequence. What makes it stand out and effective is that slow motion shot, I think, of her hand, her bloody hand, like knocking the shit over. I, I felt that was like kind of wow. And also the shot of him with the thing up over his head, like a ceremonial dagger or something. You get a somewhat good look at his face, but it's still like super stylized, just like this little square of light over his eyes, basically. If we're breaking down the kill as a slasher kill, yeah, I mean, there's no penetration, there's no effects, there's, you know, minimal blood at all. Like, again, there's blood on her hand. Maybe you see a little bit on the implement or something. But it's super, I guess you would say, tame or restrained in a subgenre that we certainly give points for the visceral nature of the staging of these things. But it also, just because this is the thing in this movie, which is so restrained, it kind of seems bigger, I think, somehow, or more graphic than it would otherwise feel because you know we don't we don't get stuff like this in this movie i don't know i'm kind of vic what's your read on it i think that the juxtaposition with the carolers is really what makes it stand out i mean it's the it's the the music the kids like cutting back and forth between this violence and these small kids who are also sort of curiously dead-eyed (laughs) <laughs> the way that they're that they're singing and stuff. I mean, but it's sort of appropriate, right? Like it's it it somehow it fits together in a way that is upsetting, even if it's not 
viscerally violent in the way that we find in a lot of other slashers. That takes it as a cinematic sequence to the next level, and it's it's cool. It's effective. I just want to challenge real quick Vic's notion that this is like a truly Christmas horror movie. I see what you're saying, and it's not, it's not like I can think of a, of a much better example. And I do love the way that Christmas is, is employed aesthetically in this film. Like, I think it's a great backdrop. I think he shoots it beautifully. Um, I think it really sets the, the tone of it apart from everything else. But, like, also, like, plot-wise... It could be Labor Day, you know, like the, the carolers aside are, are maybe the one exception. But like nothing else is specifically Christmas-y about what Billy is doing or what the characters are doing, with the exception of the fact that most of the girls are out of the house. And you're right. People stop by. But other than the carolers, I don't know that any of those people stopping by are like unusual. So like, I don't know. I guess it's like, how did this become a Christmas movie in the first place? If it's not for the carolers scene, like what about it is not transferable jesus christ rich did i I pour sugar in your gas tank or something part part of me says this is more a topic for our next show when we take a larger view this doesn't pertain to the scene that we're looking at so let's kind of put a pin in the map there but i i will say that i certainly didn't need like Billy's backstory. And this is something I I have watched part of like a couple of remakes uh, since we first started talking about this movie. You know, they make pains to tie the importance of Christmas to Billy's psychology. And it's actually kind of painful and awful. I, for one, am satisfied with the the fact that it's that season, which has to, you know, it, it brings the carol, carolers, it brings the lights, it brings the weather, it brings a lot of elements. And of course, with the girls, who's coming and going and all of that sort of chaos. And also just the fact that to undermine back to something I think we said last time, the notion of being safe in your home, like the notion of Christmas being the granddaddy of them all as far as holidays and to kind of violate the sanctity of Christmas in this way, I think is also another reason for it to happen at this time. Black Christmas is more Christmas movie than Die Hard. Okay? Come at me, bro. (laughs) I love it. I kind of agree with that, actually. Uh, But... He's like, he's like holding, you know, never mind. <laughs> All right. Yeah, well, if, yeah. If, run away, Rich. Run away. I, I think Rich is rightly knowing that this is a conversation to have next time. So I, I respect and appreciate that. That was a well-crafted deep tease for the next episode. <laughs> yes. That's professionalism. <laughs> That's how love, they do I it. I love a good deep tease. <laughs> okay. Let's hit play before we get ourselves into any more trouble. So we've got a phone call coming in. Jess is talking to the killer. They're trying to trace it. We get a huge clue here, or at least Jess does, that maybe the killer is in the house listening uh, because he, he uses the phrase like having a wart removed, which, of course, Peter said. That kind of also points us towards Peter, too, which is a thing that this movie is certainly playing out. Did anyone else think that this would be better if Ted Raimi had been the guy trying to trace the call in the uh, in, in the phone company? <laughs> a, a six-year-old Ted Raimi, definitely. <laughs> it's definitely like the kind of role he was born to play. I cannot think of another film where the gravity of tracing phone calls is treated with this uh, type of scale. Like, yeah. I don't... 
I'm pretty sure that the people who made this film actually know nothing about how telephones worked at the time. It seems so authentic, though. Like, you know, the technology involved and the procedure. But you, you made a great point, Rich, last time that I, I've been chewing on a little bit, which is if, if I think it's obvious Peter's not the killer, isn't it doubly obvious to everyone that the killer is in the house, Right. Because he's killing people in the house. What are we contemplating here? That there might be another killer, or he he keeps like running down the street to the the payphone and placing these calls. And if so, who cares? I actually think that you put your finger on it last time we talked about it, which is like it's it's still the 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 Hitchcock thing, right? It's like if there's a bomb under the table, like you show the bomb under the table, and then you show that the characters don't know that the bomb's there, right? And that's how you add like tension, right? right. And so like that's what so. We're not actually, the suspense isn't like, where is the killer? The suspense is, will they find out where the killer is before it's too late? Yes, absolutely. And correct me if I'm wrong, but we have the dead girl in the park, and we have uh, the girl whose name I've forgotten is missing. Claire. But Claire. But other than that, they don't at this point know that anybody's been murdered. This is mostly they're connecting the the harassing phone calls to the missing girl. Yeah, I'm glad that you guys bring that up because a great part of the tension is the audience just hoping that these various people who can help will put the puzzle pieces together in time to help these characters that hopefully we care about. And so that's really the game. It's not, what? He was in the house? Like, that's not, like, the twist is not what we're going for here. Now, that is somewhat different than the whole game that it's playing with Peter, the boyfriend. Guy keeps struggling with this concept. I do think that where we end up going with Peter is the audience is supposed to at least be off balance and unsure. And I I will kind of equate it to, you know, those movies where, oh, tension, by the way, um, where maybe the killer doesn't even know he or she is the killer, right? You know, those kind of psychological or uh, psychotic break kind of movies. Uh, You know, maybe, I don't know how many of those there were in 1974, but, you know, part of the paradigm is maybe Peter doesn't even know that he has this kind of fracture that was caused by the trauma or his anxiety about the relationship or something. Let's pause it. You know what I mean? Like, maybe that would explain some of it, other than the fact that he's... Well, okay, like, remember when we, we learned that he's in the house when one of the calls comes in? Um, if we know the calls are coming from the house, maybe he's in the other room making the call, right? That kind of addresses that issue. I can see that. I mean, I think this this whole third act really starts to get wound up in the, the plot mechanics. Mm-hmm. And it still works, but it is, the, the plot's game is they're going to try to sell you on Peter as a red herring. Yeah. That's it. That's what they're, that's what this whole thing is pushing you. And the way they're going to do that, or at least a, a large part of that, it involves the phone tracing mechanism. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden, where we've we've been very constrained at the, up to this point by this house, we're going to cut from the house to the phone company to John Saxon, who is at the music hall. And I think the cross-cutting is supposed to create some kind of tension. It doesn't hurt the film. I don't dislike it. But it's also like... 
it feels very different. Like it feels like it's like this movie's getting wrapped up again in these in these narrative uh, mechanics and less in the atmosphere and the tension. I don't know. Would, do you guys agree with that? I feel like it's turning into a more conventional yeah. thriller here. There's also this part of it that uh, maybe this is taking it in a different direction than what you were talking about, about, but with the possibility of Peter being the killer, there's also sort of like a who cares <laughs> component of it. Like, there is a killer that is out to get them. Like, I don't know why it even matters whether or not it's Peter or not, except for like some like very modest amount of like mystery. Right. Um, <clears throat> You know, but it doesn't change the level of danger that they're in. Yeah, that's a good point. And I actually really like that you brought that up because, again, I feel like maybe I'm just not giving the movie enough credit, even at the time, because I I keep wrestling with the idea of how much the audience is supposed to suspect Peter. And and maybe I should just go back to my explanation for that previous issue that you raised, Rich, and just say the point of Peter is that it could be pointing them in the wrong direction, which will get them killed. And we should have the anxiety as the audience, no, it's not fucking Peter, you know? And that's the purpose of it, is that Peter is, and the whole, you know, figuring out what's going on with the calls, or these are obstacles for the quote-unquote heroic characters that are preventing them from saving these girls' lives. And that that frustration and tension and the suspense of, are they going to figure it out? Are they going to go down the wrong path? That actually is part of what has us on pins and needles. And the understanding that I have of the film, even though you know I can't remember the first time I watched it, is the understanding I'm supposed to have, which is you're just hoping that these people are smart enough to uh, figure it out in, before it's too late, right? It, doesn't that work? It does. I mean, I will say, especially given the number of slasher films that we've watched up to this point that were largely ineffective whodunits, mm-hmm. I will give this film credit for this. Whether or not we're supposed to actually suspect Peter, it's just Peter. There's not 15 characters that it could be or could not be, and then at the end of the movie, they're going to pull the curtain up, and you're going to go, oh, it's Joe Schmo, the totally, janitor. Totally, totally. Um, and so I like I appreciate that, and I think it makes it more effective. I think it makes the ending more effective than a lot of the films that we watched, where it's look, you've got one road, right, and you can buy it or you cannot buy it, and it's. It, I see what you're saying, John, but I think it's hard to know how much uh, Bob Clark intended, like how much the intention of the film is that you should buy this or you should not buy it. I think it probably works either way, right? Yeah, that's a good point, uh, too. Yeah. I really thought instead of Joe Schmo, you were going to say Laurie Metcalf, because I felt very strongly <laughs> that you were pointing towards Scream 2 as the epitome of like jumping the shark with the, yes. uh, the villain rug pull. Good. Spoiler alert, Rich. Fuck, we didn't talk about that when we talked about Scream 2. <laughs> uh, we're we- sorry, listeners. Rich is sorry, okay? <laughs> you know what? I think we I think we referenced it sufficiently. That was a good pull, Rich. Absolutely. Um, what, we, I think we all talked about need, that act three in detail. What you need to know is it was fucking stupid, okay? Yeah. <laughs> that's what you need to know, and this movie isn't. And that's why we're watching it. And that's why we're not doing six and a half hours about Scream 2. <laughs> But we do love talking about this movie, and uh, there was a couple things we skipped over there I wanted to come back 
and uh, touch on, we cut back to the police station, and the farmer apparently saw some police officer who was canvassing the area looking for, uh, you know, the missing Claire or something, and uh, this guy just couldn't stomach a trespasser, and he, he blasts him in the butt with his shotgun, and it's kind of funny that his line of dialogue, and to me this is kind of pure Bob Clark. Anyway, this cantankerous citizen adds that the next time a cop, anyone, even a cop trespasses, he's going to shove that gun up the cop's ass and it's going to be positioned sideways, which (laughs) I thought was an important detail. (laughs) It's just another note. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's another tension release moment that just makes the movie overall more entertaining while I guess, you know, in that classic horror tradition, sort of softening you up for the next ratcheting up of the real tension. For me, the real uh, payoff to it is John Saxon turning to his partner and saying, if you laugh, I'll bust you down to Boy Scout. (laughs) And the guy guy is clearly trying to cover up his laugh. Yeah, I love that. I don't know if it's his partner. I feel like John Saxon is is higher up, but that guy is like the scene-at-all homicide detective, or at least he's the the plainclothes guy that is on duty, and he's like ultra-cynical, and uh, they do have a, a fun relationship, and that guy is is entertaining that you know he just he sort of is mocking everything that he witnesses uh around the station especially of course the the really stupid cop jess played by olivia hussey is going to indicate to phyllis played by andrea martin that she suspects her boyfriend peter um and presumably because of the wart being removed line but she didn't want to incriminate him with lieutenant fuller on that evidence alone in her mind. And of course that's going to be important down the stretch. She's at least on the fence about who the, the killer is and thinks it could very well be her boyfriend. And that's going to have momentous consequences. Uh, and he like, it's a nice little beat. Uh, John Saxon like questions her reaction earlier uh, to the, to the having a wart removed line and she either lies or just hasn't, put it together yet but she does not acknowledge that it meant something to her to the cop and so those little pieces are fitting together i think in a in a pretty skillful way oh for her part phyllis does not ever think that it's peter and she she proves to be right so we're kind of watching them through a doorway which is very pov yeah they're talking about you know he's gentle most of the time jess is but she's really getting scared and they say you know phyllis is like hey you know is the cop still out there and like they just see the dark car i think he's probably presumably already dead at that point but they're reassured i I have a note about that is that i mean that feels like a trope of the genre right the cop car outside where the cop is already dead oh yeah oh yeah I mean, I'm trying to think. I know that there's at least two Halloween movies. Yes. That, that. Yeah. Halloween definitely plays that card. And so now Peter is the one calling and he's breaking down on the phone. That's keeping that red herring thing going. John Saxon's listening to this. It's, it's very clear what he's upset about. We can't kill the baby, Peter's saying. And they are going through the motions of tracking this call as well. And she asks him where he is. Watching this, I was sort of stunned by how 
hard it would be if you were Olivia Hussey's character, knowing that the police were on the other end of this call. Now, she seems surprised that John Saxon has stayed on the call and not simply hung up. Mm-hmm. But it's such a, a, a vulnerable, like, personal moment to have exposed to a relative stranger. Yeah, she does say, I think, like, when, yeah, afterwards, he says he heard the call, and she's like, you heard that? So yeah. she doesn't, like, know that she's speaking into his ear. Yeah, that's true. Her presumption is that as soon as the topic of the call comes up, that she thinks he's going to have hung up. He asks, like, Lieutenant Fuller what Peter's upset about, and you just told Fuller that she was pregnant, and the context of the call he was just listening to was clear. So for me, that's an odd line for Lieutenant Fuller. I don't know if you guys noticed... Can you see? Yeah, see that silhouette? At least, like, if you're in sync with me at all. Oh, yeah. Yeah. In the background. Isn't that creepy? Holy shit. Yeah, you know that's Billy. That's the killer lurking around behind over Phyllis's shoulder in the background. After all the movies we've seen John Saxon at this point, I know there's no chance that John Saxon is hanging up on that phone call. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Judge Reinhold would hang up, but John Saxon, he's going he's gonna to stay on that call. <laughs> I keep watching the silhouette moving around back there. It's actually pretty obvious. I did not notice it before. I didn't either. Yeah, I don't know that I noticed it before this watch. So she seems relieved, and Phyllis is like, I knew it couldn't have been Peter. Except they then, so John, we talked about this a little bit mm-hmm. the last time. Then they just forget this. Yeah. Right? Like, Like, immediately, like, this just goes out the window. I know. That is probably worthy of more scrutiny. Let's go ahead and pause it, because I honestly want to look at that again. I was futzing around. Oh, yeah. Okay, well, the reason that we're saying we knew it couldn't have been Peter is that he asks, Fuller asks, was he present for any of the calls? And she says, well, yes, he was. And so that eliminates him from suspicion for this moment. Because he was at the house when the first call came in. However, we are all going to officially learn that the calls were coming from inside the house. So maybe the leap is that just because he was in the house, it's not like he was standing next to her when the phone rang, right? So he could have, I alluded to this earlier tonight, he could have been calling from another room in the house. So that's the answer to your question. I mean, that's correct. But then the Saxon just goes off on this tangent of like, in spite of that, we're going to, we're going to keep pushing it. And that doesn't, it seems like, like no one else, like I agree with your logic there, no one else articulates that, and yet we wind up where we wind up in uh, uh, in a couple of minutes here. I kind of chalk it up in some ways to John Saxon is being like that traditional police officer where whatever seems most likely, if you have nothing else, you just run that lead to the end. Because you want to close the case, you just want to keep pursuing whatever lead you have. There's enough suspicion and motivation on Peter that that's what he's going to do. I would say it seems like a hunch to him. He's yeah. got like a feeling on it that he's gonna that he's gonna pursue. So again, I, it works. It's a really minor 
quibble because you're yeah I agree like it's think about think about all the narrative problems that we run into where we all just wind up shrugging like right. this one within 30 seconds you go well like maybe he made the call from within the house and and Saxon's got a hunch and he's following up on it so it works but it is a question that does come up when you're when you get to this point in the film this uh, search party shows up, and this is another just like blatantly comedic scene. And to me, this one sort of disrupts the tone because I know these two well-meaning doofuses who show up with their guns are goofballs, but it kind of amuses the girls in, in this way. They find them hysterically funny, and one of them actually says, I'd rather face the killer. Uh, which I don't quite get. They make this pretense about their dog dying the night before to prevent these two guys from what? Coming in to search the house? Which might have been a good thing, actually. I mean, at least they're well-armed. So I'm not totally sure what to make of that scene. And this is also where Jess realizes all the sorority houses, windows, and doors are open, which is how the killer got in initially, of course. And we're, we're about to push in on the attic, suggesting that the killer has gone from Barb's room to the attic just now, right behind Phyllis. I feel like that, that tonal stuff is really Bob Clark. Oh, yeah. You know, like that is, he, he as, as disturbing and kind of unsettling as this film is, he understands that it needs these moments of levity. And they don't all hit. Like, we, I think we just, we just talked about the farmer shooting the cop in the ass and everybody having a good laugh about it, which doesn't particularly advance the plot at all in the same way that, that this doesn't, he's batting 400, you know, like it's, it, it, it works when it works and it doesn't when it doesn't. And this one doesn't quite land the way that the other one did. And probably honestly in such close proximity, like I think maybe he's overestimating how much levity we need in this. I don't know. What do you guys think of that? I tend to agree. I, I think that with the number of calls that that Jess has gotten and the way that even her own personal experience of this has ramped up, I guess like we're sort of selling it that she would sort of break down into semi-hysterical laughter out of like the very extremity that she's in, you know, that, that it's become, you know, almost like an insane laughter, like that it's become comical what's going on, but that's not how it plays. I would have bought that. It's really more that like for a minute they forget all of this is happening and they're just like these these losers like we're gonna turn them away we're gonna make some shit up because they ain't coming in here like they get a good laugh about it that um i guess like i don't know maybe these dudes are pervy or not that that's the vibe i got at all but somehow that they just like turn back into girls that don't want to deal with dweeby old men or something they forget everything that's going on and they can kind of step outside of it for a minute it's not that I, I could never get behind it, but it, it does. It, this is the only one of these little comic interludes that I really kind of tripped over. Yeah. It, it feels like a deleted scene. Yeah, that's yeah, exactly. And then, yeah, you watch it and you're like, oh, yeah, that was kind of amusing. But yeah, you're, the movie's better off without it. That's a, a perfect way to look at it. Behind the scenes, Fuller is still working the Peter lead. He's like a dog with a bone. We're, a, we're about to come back to that. <laughs> I'm sorry, John. That was just too much. 
too much penis talk. I couldn't. Uh, he's working the Peter Lee. He's like a dog with a phone. <laughs> oh, jeez. Yeah, you're basically, you're basically writing an ACDC track list right now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> totally went over my head. <laughs> That's great. We're about to get this fake out on the audience where we think that the killer has gone from Barb's room to the attic, as I mentioned before. But no, he must have gone back into Barb's room which is a shocking turn of events. And as we'll see, it's very bad news for Phyllis. So yeah, look at this like zoom in, like telling you, oh, there's the attic. Phyllis walks by. She's looking around. She goes to Barb's door. Now, John, my interpretation of that was that there was another entrance into the, the room from the attic. Maybe, but... Okay, so you just saw that that door close, and we realize like that's like a big part of his mo. It's gonna bite him in the ass later, but he stands behind the door, and then if somebody comes into the door, he's in control of the door, and he can slam it closed and trap them in the room with him. I thought that was kind of shocking, even though we see nothing, because like Phyllis is this close in some ways to getting out of the movie alive, and no, no, she doesn't. John, there's always somebody who's second to last, you know? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> it's kind of, especially in the 70s, it's always the girl with the perm, too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, because it's like she's, she's usually like she's smart enough to have made it, you know, thus far, but like not valuable. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, just like one critical mistake, you know, at the very end. So now Jess is the only one left alive in this house with the killer. And that, my friends, is what we call Act 3. I think this is the official beginning of Act 3. So the phone rings, Jess answers it, and it's Billy. And he's doing the voice of his dad, shouting, you know, stuff like, Where's the baby? You left Billy alone with Agnes. And you think that Agnes must have been very, very young if they still call her the baby, which makes that whole sexual abuse backstory even more horrific. We also get that perhaps Billy hid the baby somewhere. He wants mommy to find her. It's uh, it's pretty dark and twisted shit. The screenplay is solid in this, but it's not the sort of the selling point, I think. Except that the actual text of these calls is really disturbing. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I know, I think we touched on this a few times, but mm-hmm. like, I, I just, it can't be overstated how much we get one peak, just like, uh, Loomis and Halloween, we get one peek inside the psychology of the killer, really. It's Loomis talking about Michael Myers. Here, it's the killer's actual voice, but he's using all these other voices. It's deeply upsetting. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's fantastic. And, I mean, we can talk about this more in the overview episode, like how they realize that effect, but... Um... It's seamless. It really does just seem like somebody going through a bunch of altars or just recycling their, their trauma. He, he definitely says you have to find her regarding the baby. And, you know, part of you wants to know how that played out and part of you really doesn't, right? I want to ask about the McHenry sisters. Yeah. It's a mm. well-placed record that's just above the phone with, with Billy. I think yeah. that they were a Canadian staple, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> Is, is, that, is that real? I, I think, it, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Okay, I buy it. 
Yeah. All right, so let's pause it here. So we just got the classic moment where the line is delivered. That's where the calls are coming from too, sir. And of course, we're saying they're coming from the same address and Fuller says, oh shit, as the realization hits. They don't, you know, it's not overplayed or anything. We talked about this plenty already as far as, you know, tying into the urban legend with the the babysitter receiving the creepy calls, etc. Um, but I think at this stage, we're just hoping that that will galvanize the cops to um, spring into action and save the day. But I do think it's funny that we're <laughs> about to see Fuller's driver waits for him to try the cop outside the house, who, of course, we know had his throat slashed uh, gruesomely, and Jess will get no help from him. But Fuller tries him on the radio. Then he talks to Nash at the stadium, uh, at the station a couple of times before heading off to Belmont Street, which we know is five minutes away. But fortunately, you know, it's not like it's an every second counts situation, right? So, yeah, just, you know, make your little radio calls and then go there. <laughs> the house mother is Mrs. Mack. Mm-hmm. And it seems like, from a, a cursory uh, uh, Google search, that the McHenry Sisters is the album that was that was made by Mrs. Mack and her sister in her youth. What really? That no would way. Seem to be the case. Okay, none. I I have a few special features to finish before our big overview episode. But uh, I can't believe nobody would have mentioned that um, so far. I'm not saying that it's not possible, but um, that did not come up. However, maybe they just thought it was so obvious in Canada that people would know that. Mm -hmm. In in Black Christmas Wiki, which is Mm -hmm. a fucking thing, Barbara McHenry is the house mother to the Delta Alpha Kappa sorority sisters. So it's just a joke. It's like an inside joke. Wow. I mean, for Canadians. Yeah. It's her album. Wow. That's, that is some good shit, Vic. Well, good, good find. That is John Saxon level detective work. (laughs) (laughs) Did you guys have any thoughts in like the extended delay before they actually start the car to, to go out back to Belmont street? Uh, I guess I, I didn't consider it all that much. I was rather distracted by the by the the slit throat makeup on the the cop. Yeah, it's outside. pretty gruesome, isn't it? It is gruesome. I mean, like it doesn't give the sense that you're seeing inside of a human body. Like if that's if that's what you were trying to convey, but like, sure, <laughs> it's gruesome. Uh, well, it has, a, it has a blood feast quality to it. <laughs> All right, let's pause it. We just came out of commercial break. I think that that's worth noting, and I want to get into it a bit more when we see there is a tableau, folks, in this movie, a Michael Myers-esque tableau coming up that I I think really throws even more shade on the quality of the uh, VFX or the gore effects, the makeup effects in this movie. I I paused the shot that, that Rich is talking about uh, for quite some time when I was under the influence of my gummy. And I, I thought the effect was pretty good. I mean, I think of all the 
gore related or blood effects in this movie that is it's definitely the best one am i crazy i mean at least they did some actual makeup everything else is just like a little blood right look it's it's fine i remembered it and i will say like it's not this movie's strength but like that's Mm -hmm. fine like there's a lot of these a lot of these films like had sort of like subpar effects this one only has a handful of them and like the the one with the cop is like it's it's effective for what it is Good, good. I'm glad. I'm glad because, like, I I thought it was certainly fine, and I actually I'm gonna I'm gonna take issue with what they do coming up here. Vic, any any thoughts here, or should we hit play? Are you ready? Let's hit play. All right. One second. No, I'm actually still in commercial. I think I still. Oh, okay. Wow. Jesus Christ, Rich. <laughs> Classic Rich. <laughs> dragging his feet. I'm watching it. What is it? A dating app? What is this? No, she's learning. What is she? Oh, yeah, it is a dating app. It's ER. Oh, 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 she's dead. Oh, wait. <laughs> it's not an app. It's Phyllis. It's oh, no. <laughs> what kind of app is this? You're either a Billy or an Agnes. <laughs> Jess is alone in the house calling for dead people and the phone rings. The, the, I mean, the classic uh, slasher film trope, right? Yeah. Steve, is that you? Yeah, absolutely. Wandering around. She's like terrified to pick up the phone, but it's just Nash at the police station. There are definitely some calls where you're like, oh no, it's him, but it's somebody else in this movie. Do you think she'd rather it was Billy? I actually rather like I like the way Nash plays this. Like he he actually does a pretty good job. He doesn't get the results he wants, but he tries to just get her out of the house while keeping her calm and uh it escalates quickly. And there's I think it's a great moment coming up when he he becomes he really starts worrying for her. This is I have this standing agreement with my wife that I I don't actually think she'll honor. But I'm like, look, if I come in and to get, we got to go right now. You can't ask me why. Yeah. You can't go get, you can't go get anything. You just have to go. So if I come in and say, we have to go right now, you just have to go and like, don't ask me any questions. And this is uh, uh, Olivia Hussey just absolutely fails this test right now. I actually, I thought, uh, I mean, my wife and I have a a hall pass with Olivia Hussey, but, uh, but that's a different arrangement. That's definitely where I felt like this was going. Like, yeah. you have a tacit agreement with your wife where there's no questions asked. <laughs> so, um, it's fucking the, weird, you guys. The moment here, though, like where he's like, don't go upstairs, Jess. And he's yelling at her as she slowly lowers the receiver, frozen with dread. It's a great moment. And then she starts calling desperately for Barb and Phil from the front door area. She doesn't want to abandon them. She's just losing it because like, she's overcome with her, her dread and horror. But instead of leaving, she goes for the fireplace poker. She's going to go upstairs. It's stupid. It's brave. It's heroic. All three. She's clearly terrified, but she's just not willing to leave her girls, I guess. And I think it is kind of understandable, even laudable final girl behavior. But uh, sadly, it doesn't work out so well. 
And on the soundtrack, we're going to get the dreaded Harbinger of Doom again, those scraping piano strings as Jess approaches Barb's room. And it always signals that the killer is near and that the character who is on screen when that music plays is probably in trouble. I know we talked a little bit about this in the the first half of this, but the location, I mean, a little bit like uh, Texas Chainsaw 2022, the location is great. Oh, yeah. It doesn't have a lot of the, the touches that Texas Chainsaw did, but the banister, the, the dark wood, like it really does feel very gothic. It does. Um, it's very yeah, iconic. This is your, your classic uh, craftsman home, Vic. Pasadena. <laughs> Bob, yeah, Bob Vila's gonna gonna take you through this classic home. I mean, this, this is very much like a, they're living in a craftsman and a Christmas story as well. He's a fan of that. All right, so we get our little tableau. She bursts open through the door. We see that Phyllis is piled on Barb, and at a glance, Jess gets her answer uh, regarding the health and and wellness <sighs> of Phil and Barb. It's a very quick shot. All right, let's pause it there. Uh, I'm sure you guys are looking at the eyeball, I hope. Uh, yeah. Yeah, Billy peering between the crack, between the door frame and the door. It's, it's talk about iconic. But I did want to, uh, to Rich's point earlier about the effects, you could go back if you wanted to um, and pause it to, to look at, at Phil and Barb. It's a very quick shot. I'll just tell you that y- you clearly, if you do pause it, you see that they do not go all out on the effects here. Just a little blood smeared on the two actresses who are staring vacantly, but they don't look especially dead or damaged to my eye. And come to think of it, you never really see any signs of decomposition with Claire or Mrs. Mack either. Uh, the movie is super minimalist in this regard. And personally, if I was in charge of a remake, one of the few things I know right now that I would change is that I would make the violence and the corpses particularly as disturbingly realistic as possible. I have no big problem with the approach this movie takes, especially in 1974. But personally, a little bit of impact is lost with the lack of that grim natural horror of death. It's not blatantly unrealistic or anything, though a little borderline, but you just don't get a sense of the unpleasant reality either. I am in no way saying I want over-the-top gore or anything, but something that felt a little more real and grounded and authentic would be value-added in my mind. I want to say, John, I don't know how much longer I can keep staring at Billy's weird red eye. Oh, I know, dude. Yeah. It's such a weird color, right? It looks like the the pupil is like inset. I don't know. It's it's really weird. Mm-hmm. It's everything that didn't go into the effect on the bodies is present <laughs> in this little narrow shot of his eye. Yeah. Is that an actual effect shot? I can't imagine his eyes are actually that color. I will endeavor to answer that question before our, um, I, I, before our next one, I have had the good fortune, um, I guess to obtain a pretty good Blu-ray deluxe edition of this movie that is kind of loaded with special features. And at this moment, I'm really only about halfway through it. 
So there's more uh, to learn about the film. And I've really been enjoying that because there's a lot of good stories associated with this movie. I just want to point out, if they don't talk about the McHenry sisters, then you got robbed. I know. (laughs) I know. Totally. Like, that should have been front and center. But anyway, so the dialogue that we're paused on is where he's saying, uh, I hope, or something uh, to this effect, Agnes, Agnes, didn't, don't you tell what we did, Agnes. And I, I did want to observe that Billy thinks everyone is Agnes. <laughs> he has the same conversation with any young woman in his immediate area. <laughs> They're all Agnes. And my other observation with this shot is that um, they just throughout the whole movie, they go out of their way to keep the killer obscured. He's just peering here through that little gap between the the open door and and its frame and hinges. They maintain the mystery with this killer, which I think is probably better than seeing a guy who I'm pretty sure looks like kind of a goofball. (laughs) Zombie Jason, this is not. I, I think it's so much scarier to make him in the film's representation of him feel more like final destinations, invisible angel of death in some ways, because we don't get too caught up in the nitty gritty of what this, this human being actually looks like, if that makes sense. You could make the case that this is more effective, uh, at least in this one respect than Halloween where we lose the mask on Michael Myers at the very end and see just a guy. You know what I mean? That that humanizes mm. Michael in a way that Billy is never humanized in this film. That's a very interesting point. If only we were going to talk about Halloween for hours and hours, we would have time to get into that. Well, oh, wait, is, shit, no, we are. <laughs> This is a this is a juxtaposition that I feel like it's important to bring up now so that we can reflect on it when we get to that moment in Halloween, John. Also, and I just want to say I mean this from the bottom of my heart, fuck you. <laughs> I had that coming. Um, but no, I wasn't actually uh, just fucking with you there. It was more like... I was actually coming to terms with the fact that we are going to, we were going to, you know, do multiple hours on a movie that we've already talked about for multiple hours, but, in the, but, but we're going to talk about it in, in relief from the other films that we're talking about. And so this yeah. feels like an important moment to bring up. So also once again, fuck you. <laughs> I mean, I love you, John, but also fuck you. Also, uh, if, if I read the if I read the terms correctly, we're all taking uh, a ten milligram gummy before that podcast. <laughs> yeah, so yes. it's going to be it's gonna be different. Now we're time. talking. I might go for twenty on that one, man. It's, I got to. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be different, John. Yeah. That'll give it a different spin. <laughs> Fresh eyes for sure. <laughs> all right. Well, we're about to unpause it, but just because you know the last few minutes of this or at least like the next couple are going to play out really quick. I will say in advance that uh, her reaction to seeing this eye is to close the door on him. And uh, his MO of standing behind the door, holding the doorknob, it worked like gangbusters with Phil, but it's going to backfire here as she, she hurts him 
pretty badly and has a clear path from here to the front door. Bam! She just slams that door on him. He starts screaming in pain. She's, you know, sprinting down the stairs. She's going to get the fuck out of here. It's all well. But suddenly the door won't open. The front door. I'm not sure about that. Yeah. Like, I would have, before I took that that fireplace implement, I would have opened the door. But I still don't know why the door gives her some trouble there. In any event, she's forced to go down to the basement. Or she could have just gone out the front door when the police said, go out the front door. But Uh, does any of my comments about, you know, heroism and sisters before, uh, I don't know. Is there a bros before hose? There probably is version for, for ladies. Hose before bros. No. Uh, Um, uh, Sorry. I was just saying sisters before misters. Oh, good. There you go. There you go. Thank you, Rich. That was clutch. But I'm not going to totally shit on either her or the movie for that decision because that is quintessential final girl shit. You know, she didn't know they were dead. Yes. She just screamed for them from the bottom of the stairs and no one answered. (laughs) They could be napping. (laughs) (laughs) No, maybe they're tied up and gagged. Who knows? They'd be like, you you left. I'm just saying this is this goes back to what I was saying. When the police call and say, put the phone down and walk outside, put the phone down and walk outside. I agree with you. Of course, I do. I will will leave my kids, my dog, (laughs) my wife, my fucking chickens. They can all go to hell. (laughs) So he was banging, like going wild on the other side of that basement door, but suddenly he goes quiet and composed. He walks away. I I found that kind of eerie. And like, there's a a lot of like, sort of not, not overly drawn out, but you know, she's tension here as she's walking around the basement. And then there's a silhouette outside the, the, the out exterior of the windows in this basement. And yeah, we get the creepy peering, you know, silhouette thing, like trying to see into the, into the basement. And it certainly looks like a psycho killer. Peter just has the worst timing in history. He does. Of course, as they're suggesting, this is going to end up being Peter, and he's coming to the window of the basement. And, uh, you know, it's theoretically possible he's the killer, so she has to honor that possibility. And he does look a bit crazed, especially when he breaks the window and comes in. Uh, The film is definitely playing the whodunit card here. Yeah, Peter plays his part, you know, having no idea how any of this is really looking. But... I I do like the motivation we give him is pretty believable that, you know, like I could understand why this guy just the relationship and this potential child means a ton to him. And he's really broken up about the idea that they're not only that she's going to abort it, but that their relationship is, you know, presumably she wants to move on and do the things she wants to do in her life. So it's not like outrageous to think that he would be, especially after he like blows up his own life. Remember he destroyed his piano and all that. Exactly. Which is also what sort of John Saxon is leaning on as evidence. That's right. I I didn't mention, but yeah, he found that thing and that is kind of significant. He's like, fuck, like look what this guy did at the university to the, the piano. Like that is a significant 
clue that maybe this guy is unhinged. It's true, but it's like everything up to this point, you can kind of go, well, like, I understand he's upset about the, the, the idea that she might have an abortion and blah, blah, blah. But like the moment that he smashes that window and breaks into the basement, that is sort of a next level psycho shit. Uh, yeah. And kudos to Kier, Kier, Kier Dulea? 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 Dulea. Mm-hmm. Um because he manages to pull off. I mean, he looks like a uh, looks like a young Vigo Mortensen here. Actually, <laughs> yeah. um, I see that. He, someone fetch Vic a pillow. <laughs> 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 um, but he he manages to pull off this where you could read it either way kind of an impressive performance honestly from someone who i think of as being a a wooden actor yeah i agree i i, I don't think he's wooden in this as opposed to like 2001 right great mm-hmm. uh, the cops come in finally uh you know just in the nick of too late and uh fuller is intrepidly leading them through the basement and he's about to discover that peter is dead bleeding from mouth nose eye and head and there's blood on the poker in Jess's hand, but his head is in her lap, and she seems to be okay but unconscious, and she'll slowly open her eyes. And you you know what played out here. You know, she killed him. And it's it's this is pretty rough on so many levels as you really understand what's happening with the film. It's, it's interesting you say that because actually I felt kind of confused the first time I watched this. Like, I mm-hmm. don't feel like they actually make it super clear what, what happened. No, they don't. And then, you get this, like, and then shortly afterwards, you get this, like, kind of, like, post-mortem scene where, which I actually thought was going to go into, we mentioned this uh, previously, uh, about, like, the, the sort of, like, the psycho, like, post-exposition uh, sequence. It feels like that's where we're going with this that now she's in the bed and she's passed out cold and John Saxon's sitting around with the other cops and they're kind of talking about what happened. And, and thankfully it doesn't go down that path and doesn't like try to like over explain things really. There's a little bit of a sort of what happened here. But I love that it's a complete misdirection. You know, it's just explaining how the police concluded that Peter was the killer and Jess killed him. And so it's it's taken care of. She's drugged right now. She's sleeping in a bed. They're going to leave her there for her parents who are driving down from Unionville. Apparently, nobody checks the attic because, again, they had in their mind that it was Peter. And they, they see that so did she. And so, like, this is so almost Lovecraftian in how, like, fucked up this chain of events is. Um, how it kind of conspires to leave poor Jess in, in the worst situation imaginable. I do think it's crazy, like, how, how, how much, like, there's a room full of people who all just abandon her within, like, minutes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is probably, you know, three or wait, is that clock accurate? Yeah, it's four in the morning. I mean, if the if the clock in the background here by her bed, it's four in the morning. Uh, you know, we all know everybody's been up all night. They think the situation is resolved. And, you know, there's press there and like this, this, th- who knows? They're, you're compressing some time too. But 
they they do leave her unconscious in this room and it's yeah it's pretty fucked up but the whole movie has painstakingly gone to the trouble of explaining why they think they have it all figured out right yeah i mean sure yeah. that's a that's a doozy of an alarm clock too <laughs> yeah <laughs> all right so we're gonna end with these two wonderful final shots absolutely uh, First, we pan across the girl's desolate rooms. We see a few bloodstains on Barb's mattress. Then we go to Claire's room. The suitcase is still there. But we start to hear Billy as we approach the attic. And it's such an oh shit. And wh- whether you think all of it was a cheat to get here, it's in service of just one of the great gut punch endings in horror. When you think about the ramifications of all of this the connection between this and the ending of Halloween, I think probably can't be overstated. Now I would be hard pressed to think that John Carpenter wasn't inspired by this. Well, I was going to save that, but I will say something pretty fucking huge before we, we close the curtain on today's episode regarding John Carpenter and Halloween. But yeah, let's stay in the moment here. We're approaching the attic slowly, drifting up, and we're about to segue to the second shot. All of that was one magnificent shot. And slowly zooming in, hearing his indistinct singing, Billy up there, we're going to begin zoomed in on Mrs. Mac's corpse and then very slowly pull back from her past Claire's smothered face in its plastic plastic wrapping out the attic window. There is a dissolve. It's not technically, this is not all one shot here, but it's still really smooth as we leave Claire's face in the window and pull back from this now dark and quiet house. All Christmas cheer is absent and over. It's a very different vibe than the similar shot that opened the film of this very house. And, of course, the classic, what else could happen right now in this film, all about phone calls. After a little dog barking for verisimilitude, we get a ringing phone. No music here, just the wind. A phone begins to ring. There's a a cop still hanging around outside. Wonder if that would help Jess out at all, the way things go. I have a feeling he's heading home soon. But it's an interesting touch. There's still a cop outside. Roll credits. Black Christmas, everybody. The credits over just like the the phone ringing is brilliant. Yes. It's brilliant. It sure is, man. Um, uh, It ranks among the great endings in horror films. I totally agree. I totally agree. It's such... This is just a pitch black ending. I got skipped out um, on my uh, Tubi. But uh, yeah, I mean, you you get the idea. Uh, Rich, what do you think about this ending? I was watching Chopping Mall. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be season 23, baby. <laughs> Killer robot movies. 
the exterior shot. Like, I love that it's the repeat of the opening shot of the film. I don't, I don't know how much of a mirror image it is, but it's, it's certainly trying to evoke the idea that like you're exiting the movie the same way you came in, which is always an effective technique. And you know, and I, I like the way that it's employed here. I mentioned this when I was talking about the opening of the film, but I closely associate that shot with uh, a Christmas story. And so that actually lends it from this like retrospective eye, even a additional layer uh, of unsettling quality to it. So, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I like it. I mean, like I agree that there's a starkness to the, the lack of music and to the fact that you're kind of like left with the ambiance of the, of the neighborhood and the fact that she's left so alone. So it's, I mean, Ultimately, it's definitely like an effective ending for a pretty effective film. Yeah, we don't know what happens to Jess, but um, we have to assume the worst. And it's it's almost mind-bendingly awful that this character, this wonderful, plucky, heroic, decent person who was willing to make very difficult decisions in her own personal life and you know, in regard to her, her life itself would, would meet this fate, you know, presumably everybody in this movie who goes to bed dies. Right. So it doesn't bode well for sleeping Jess once the house gets quiet again. Right. So yeah, I mean, maybe we can even save some of the pondering of the repercussions of this or the implications of it, because I do think it, it we need to keep in mind that this ending is a sledgehammer to the face. I mean, even though it's so subtle, it's easy to just kind of, well, it's open-ended, whatever. But, I mean, I think if you process it at all, this is one of the most bleak and disturbing endings in the genre, let alone slasher movies. And we have to kind of keep in mind that usually slasher movies, maybe there's some kind of carry ending fake out sort of a thing, but usually they end with at least the veneer of the villain being defeated and the heroine at least surviving that movie. And this movie just ends on a note that I can't think of a single slasher movie and precious few horror movies that even try to strike this absolutely bleak and nihilistic tone, but it does it in such a subtle way. It's so it's subtle enough that it's not like the massive bummer that if you were laughing at the jokes in this movie and enjoying the ride in the theater, which would have been fucking awesome. And I would love to have that experience someday to watch this movie in a theater that you would walk out of this movie being like, Oh my God, you know, but maybe you are, Maybe you're chilled to the bone, but it doesn't have to like ruin your Friday night either because it's just, you have to connect some dots to get how truly fucked up this movie's ending is. She's clearly going to go on to graduate school and incur crippling debt (laughs) as she tries to get a career. Yeah. (laughs) That's the worst fate of all. uh, No doubt. Which is awful. Yeah. She's never going to shake that accent. <laughs> her her weird European patrician accent. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, one, one random thought before I drop this John Carpenter anecdote. Um, how does Billy get the phone number to call? 
do they have their own phone number written down like on a post-it note next to one of the phones if there are more than one? I, I don't know if you I don't know if you remember this or not, but like back in the day, like underneath the number pad, there would be like a like covered with like a piece of plastic. There would be a thing where you'd print the phone number of the phone that you're calling from. It would be like underneath the underneath the dial pad. But that's not the number he's dialing. He's dialing the number downstairs. No, yeah, exactly. He's right. He's, he's clearly creeping around, like I've seen in the as seen in the. Phyllis scene, like he has access to the downstairs. Oh, so you're saying he went to the phone that she picks up all the time downstairs. She, he got the number of that phone, then went to the other phone upstairs and called it. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I can kind of get behind that. All right. Let's leave that there for now. Let me blow your fucking minds. They did not mention uh, the singing career of Mrs. Mack, but in these special features, we did get a Bob Clark anecdote that he was working with John Carpenter a few years, I guess not too many, after this movie on another project. I don't know exactly who was going to direct or write or produce, but they were going to do something, a movie together, and it didn't happen. But they were having a conversation, John Carpenter was like, are you going to do another black Christmas? And he said, Bob Clark said, no, I'm just, you know, I, I, I'm not, I'm moving on to other things. It's never going to happen. And then John Carpenter said, well, if you did, what would it be? And Bob Clark said, well, I, I have thought about it and I can tell you exactly what, what it would be if I did it. It's, the next year, and Billy was caught at some point, you know, after the events of Black Christmas, and he's been in an institution this whole time. But at Halloween, he breaks out of the institution, and he comes back to the sorority house. And now there's different people there, and he goes on the, on the rampage again. And because, you know, the first movie was Christmas, this would be Halloween. And he, he was going to use the title. I don't know if it would have been Black Halloween. Probably not. But, like, it was, it was that. And John Carpenter was like, wow, wow, that's, that's, that's awesome. That's really cool. Bob Clark was, like, not, not pissy about it, but he was like, the only thing I kind of wanted was maybe, like, some kind of little reference to the fact that, you know, maybe even just over the title, that, it, that was my contribution. But he's like, I wasn't going to make the movie, so I was totally happy that he did and that he took it in his own direction and he, you know, of course, uh, made it his own. But that anecdote, gentlemen, kind of blew my mind because in our final four, we have Black Christmas and... Black Christmas 2. <laughs> yeah. That's wild, man. I want Carpenter to respond. We can still get him. He's still alive. He is. Yeah, maybe he has. You know, like this was an, obviously, unfortunately, Bob Clark's been gone for uh, a number of years now. Uh, so I don't, I don't know if Carpenter has responded uh, subsequent to this interview. That was the autopsy of Black Christmas, March Mad Men style. 
Hope you enjoyed it half as much as we did, everybody. If so, uh, give me a shout on Twitter at John F underscore Evans, or drop us a line in the March Mad Men group on Facebook, or go ahead and post a positive review wherever you found our podcast. We'd really appreciate it. We're not done with Black Christmas yet. The Mad Men are going to take a step back and look at the bird's eye view of this film and its place in the Pantheon. So stay tuned for that coming soon. And of course, we've got three more Fatal Four finalists to study in excruciating detail. For now, though, keep those windows and doors locked, sleep in shifts, leave when the cops tell you to, and keep in mind, the calls are always coming from inside the house. Adios!